Welcome back to Her Hustle with your hosts, Chloe and Mimi. We interview successful female and non-binary entrepreneurs about their businesses and how they got from college to where they are today. Whether you have a side hustle or want to own your own company, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit and are eager to learn, this podcast is for you. Let's get going. Hi, everyone. Okay, we are back with Anna Gabriella Casalme, who is the founder and CEO of Novelli, an edtech startup reimagining civic education for students. Anna began to use young adult fiction to talk to high schoolers about sexual violence and saw the value in using fictional characters to learn about and discuss social issues such as immigration or mental health. Anna studied human biology at Stanford and has focused her path into education, civic engagement, and childhood studies. She has always been an active community member through her health, education, and policy research across Ultimed and the California Planned Parenthood Education Fund, to name a few awesome organizations. Essentially, Anna's amazing app is incredible and right after this episode you must download it because it really empowers social discussion and fiction and so Anna welcome hello hi thank you so much for having me all right Anna just to kind of kick us off we would love if you can share with our listeners who may have not heard of Novelty before the founding story and the need that you're solving Oof, how much time do we have? Uh, So just to kind of back up a little bit, I am an avid reader. I was that kid who would read at the dinner table, absolutely loved it. My mom um, actually took me and my siblings to the library across the street and the library was our form of daycare. But moving forward to Stanford in my senior year. So I was a senior at Stanford when Brock Turner had sexually assaulted Chanel Miller. And that was just such a raw wound for our mm-hmm. campus to put it or for for lack of a better word and it made me realize that there were just all of these conversations around consent that were happening with students way too late 21 years old is not the first time you should be learning about boundaries and consent absolutely not mm-hmm. so that in addition to the fact that during my senior year, I was also working on my education honors thesis. And my thesis was on this children's book called Wonder by RJ Palacio, which is a great book. It's one of the first best-selling books about a child with a disability. So my question for my research was centered around, how can we create inclusive classrooms? Can a children's book create a space where middle school students, so students as young as 11 or 12, can they talk about disability in a really thoughtful and empathetic way? And through my research, I hung out in these classrooms and found that I could have the best, most insightful, most thoughtful conversations I had ever had about disability with really young students. But it's because having a character and a plot that was relatable and emotions and universal experiences that gave them the language to talk about it, that gave them the power to talk about topics that would otherwise be intimidating. So I couldn't stop thinking about sexual violence, couldn't stop thinking about this power of books and stories to really create a space for folks to talk about things that are really hard to talk about and just tried to figure out a way to combine them. So I had graduated, I had sat on this idea for a really long time, but there came an opportunity when I was in graduate school, so this was a few years later, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were 
we're sourcing any and all ideas from all over the world. And basically their question was, how can we completely reimagine civic education for young people? And I thought to myself, that's it. That's that's the opportunity. That's the idea. Yes, civics and thinking about social issues and our place within our community. This is what young adult fiction can have an impact on, as well as digital technology. That's kind of the founding story of Novelly. I sent in a proposal, was very shocked to hear back from the Gates Foundation, and they wanted to hear more. Yeah, (laughs) and it was perfect, too, because it was literally like as I was graduating from my master's program. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) So I was like, this is my job, I guess, is is to make this a reality. And figure out how we can turn a civic education system that's not built for young people into one that genuinely respects the insight and capacity that they have. Awesome. Well, I guess like after you heard back about your proposal, what were the next steps you took to really build up Novelly and the founding team? Yeah. Uh, so I, I had to take a break first. I had long planned a backpacking trip in Australia as a Ooh. as a gift for myself after yeah. I graduated. So I told them, hey, I'm going to take a couple of weeks <laughs> to do this first. And they said, fine. But anyways, um, in January of 2019, so about a year and a half ago is when I started working full time on this idea. And to be honest, it was it was really hard. Like I felt like such an imposter. I didn't have a tech background. And all of a sudden, I had promised the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation this app. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know the first thing about how to build a mobile app. So it was a lot of learning and a lot of like anxiety around whether or not I was cut out to actually do this. The second thing about that beyond feeling very out of my depths in terms of tech was not having a team. So I was by myself finances, having to hire, having to open up a bank account for a business, all of these things were put on me to do. But thankfully, after a few months, I did start building a team. And the really cool thing about this intersection of young adult fiction and social issues, social justice, the people who ended up approaching me and emailing me were people who were so genuinely passionate about this. So I got emails from LinkedIn and from all of these different platforms, Facebook, Twitter, places that I like didn't even advertise at some points, but some other people did. And that's how we started to build up the team. And we've gone through a few rounds of different teams and just experimenting with what works. But now our current team have become this core team that I really love working with. That's awesome. And, you know, we hear this all the time with imposter syndrome and kind of just getting your feet in the water and just doing it um, right off the bat. So it's so cool to hear that, although like it might have been nerve wracking in the beginning, you kind of pushed through and now you've been able to create something so beautiful and amazing and have built out a team of people that you can rely on. Thank you. Yeah, it's very real. It's a very real thing that founders, particularly female founders and founders of color Mm -hmm. go through. Can you tell us a little bit about your business in terms of the chapters and educational programs you have and how you partner with, yeah, just your partnership? Completely. So the cornerstone of our work is this mobile reading app where we curate a collection of stories centered on a social issue and release them each semester. This summer, we weren't supposed to have a collection, but then COVID happened. So we launched a special collection of young adult fiction stories 
around coronavirus from the lens of race. That's how our app works. There's a lot of learning and interactivity embedded within the stories in order to spark critical thinking and empathy. But the way that the mobile app is meant to be used is in two ways, So, which you've already alluded to. One is the adult-led workshops. So these are workshops that could be led by librarians, English teachers. We've also had Girl Scout troop leaders. So lots of people who are interested in just finding a way to an, an all-inclusive solution to integrating civics into their day-to-day programming. The other side of it, which we're super excited about and honestly came out because of coronavirus and realizing that schools were closed, is our youth-driven work. And that is something new and exciting and not what we expected, but our clubs basically that use the Novelty app to spark discussions with their peers. And if I had to describe them, they're basically these super woke book clubs <laughs> for, <Yeah>. for high school <laughs> <That's students>. awesome. <laughs> and those are the those are the two main ways um it's a lot of partnerships as you can imagine a lot of working directly with young people but also the the adults in their lives whether it be their parents or mm-hmm. or teachers mm-hmm. yeah i'm so glad you brought up the app because i downloaded it and kind of read through a few stories and i loved all the discussion questions that really came up. And so I was wondering, in building the app out, how did you implement design thinking and user feedback? And maybe could you share some ideas you have for future features in the app? Of course. So first thing I do have to say is that we're launching a second version uh, very soon. So probably when this comes out, actually, the new version will be released and it's very cool. If I do say so myself, it has some new features, which is a Google Classroom integration. So mm-hmm. all of the clubs and also the the workshops that are using it can integrate with a Google Classroom so they can communicate with their specific group and have a little bit more of a private space within the app. The other feature that's coming out very, very soon is a time capsule journal mm-hmm. as you're reading along and see how your perspective has evolved over time. So there's that. In okay. terms of design thinking, I know it's like, cool. <laughs> it's. I'm so excited. <laughs> I have been obsessed with it and have been trying to hold my excitement because I know that it's not available yet. In terms of design thinking and user feedback, so I attended the D school at Stanford. A lot of my major is particularly in human biology. I customized it so that it would incorporate a lot of design thinking. And I think whenever you're building something for someone, that someone should be heavily involved in the process. Otherwise, what's the point is kind of the attitude that I take. And we were very lucky in the beginning to have gotten accepted into the Innovation Next Accelerator. If anyone's interested in starting an organization or company that deals with young people, I highly recommend this program. But it's all centered on on design thinking and user feedback. So as part of the process of creating this app, we had to interview and work with words of 50 middle and high school students who fit the age range. And even though it was very stressful, design thinking is super messy. You realize that you're completely wrong and have to start over. You have to try new things. And sometimes the things that you personally love are not the things that resonate with folks. So we went through a lot of that. It was a long six-month process without even building an app. But I'm proud of it because even though I just felt so stressed about not building anything yet, the things that we learned early on would then save us a lot of time and money mm. because it's it's much cheaper to mess up with a prototype than it is to build out 
and pay a software engineer to build out an app feature and find out that it's just not what people wanted. So that's how everything happened with that first version. With the second version, we've continued to utilize design thinking and resulted in the Google Classroom integration and the features that I just mentioned. I am very excited, though, that we'll be continuing to roll out new features. So some things to look out for in the future are streaks. Oh, like on Snapchat? Yeah, like a, like if you hop in and read every day, like mm. knowing that that's like a habit that you've been building up. Cool. Wow. Kind of like a challenge. Yeah, because I think people who like to read tend to have this goal forever of reading more. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And so that's where that came from. Another thing that I'm, I personally am really excited about is a long press menu while reading. So you know how on certain apps you can press for a while and then highlight it and either keep it in your profile to read for later or or in your notes or um, the thing or one of the features that I really like on Wattpad is that you can highlight it and then immediately have it on an Instagram background and post it. Oh, what? I love it. (laughs) So things like that, like more or like just fun community building type of features as well. I have to ask, so did you create the prototype yourself with your team and then outsource it to actual designers to create it? Or how did you actually make the final copy or the process of making the next version of the app? That's a great question. So we have a full product team and we're very lucky to have that. Uh, So in the very, very beginning, I immediately hired a a UX UI designer and then hired a full stack developer. After the first version of the app, now we have a product manager, a UX UI designer, and two full stack developers. I'm actually quite removed from the process. Like I like to sit in on user feedback sessions, but ideally like the UX UI designer is the one who produces the mocks or the prototypes and brings it to a young person. And I sit in on those and we hear about their feedback and then she edits the mocks and then sends it over to the developers. It sounds very neat, but it's actually like way more messy and collaborative than that, just because everyone has to have a say. The young person has to have a say. The UX UI designer has a say. And then the full stack developer, they might find out that something is actually way harder to code than the UX UI designer thought. Um, The interactions have become a lot more fluid. Okay, yeah, no, that's really good. I guess, especially for people who are interested in really building out a product. I'm wondering, Anna, if you could share more about the edtech space in general and what is currently missing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think edtech is huge and a space that is very, very exciting for folks, uh, precisely because there is a lot of money and an abundance of problems to solve, both of which make really good motivation for starting a company and being an entrepreneur in this space. So I would look at EdTech as kind of, there's like a more traditional EdTech startup where they're really focused on solving problems within traditional education institutions, so schools. Um, They might be solving problems with either logistics or communication or problems that teachers have, or it might just be like pure instruction with a lot of core subjects like math, reading. So those folks really are in it, like really, really deep in in education. And there's people like me uh, and there's people like Vanessa, who is one of my really good friends where we're education adjacent. And we think of it as very holistic. Learning itself is a 
holistic journey. What is missing is is more folks like us who are exploring education a lot more broadly. Like there's so many things that go into developing as a person that are not just strictly related to learning math, even though that's super, super important. Like all of these are very foundational, but also like social emotional learning, like topics like that. And putting them on the same level. Yeah, like valuing them just as much and also valuing learning that happens outside of school, which is what we do. Like we focus very much on like the extracurricular as still part of the education system. So I think that's really what's missing is like putting these other experiences at the same level as something that is being tested. That's wonderful. And you base your entire company on these awesome values and your past experiences in social and health policy. And so I'm wondering how you've applied maybe your past learnings when you were at Stanford or just your research before and after grad school to Novelty today. Mm, That is a really great question, actually, because I, so I was actually pre-med and I'm supposed to be in medical school right now. I was pretty much on my way to becoming a pediatrician. Mm. And I think public health, child and adolescent health, they're still very, very important yeah. to me. But I think what focusing on social and health policy initiatives and research has really taught me is that it's all connected. We actually need as much help as the American healthcare system needs. <laughs> I just realized that, you know, looking at all of these issues in an interdisciplinary way, I, I realized that I didn't know if I would make as much of an impact if I wanted to, or the kind of impact that I wanted to have if I was a pediatrician. Not to say that that's not a worthwhile profession. Of course it is. Like nothing will ever replace medicine and treating a child. At the same time, though, I I realized that like actually where I want to be is at the intersection and thinking about um, bringing in lots of different disciplines. So when I think about Novelly, I I think about um, young people or students that we work with as whole people, like they interact with very complex systems and ecosystems of whether it be like social, environmental, interpersonal, and all of these different relationships matter in terms of their health and well-being. And thinking about Novelty and how we've developed it is we've definitely kept that in mind um, when we think about like how students interact with each other and how those discussions can change their their hearts and minds or, or affect their development. Now that you brought that up, I'm reflecting now so much. <laughs> it has made a, a huge <laughs> impact. Um, this is kind of a side note, but I think also I used to think of all all the stuff that I did in in preparation to go to medical school, like I had initially felt like, oh gosh, like I had wasted my time. Mm. And because I did not choose medicine, like I like did all these things and and wasted my time and it didn't serve what I eventually ended up doing, but that's not the case. And I think this reflection through this question has actually helped me kind of cement that a little bit more. So thank oh, you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. No, with that, um, we'd kind of love to prompt that further. And we wanted to know maybe your five-year vision for Novelli in terms of, do you see yourself inserted in schools, like an NGO of sorts? And we're wondering how um, is your long-term funding plan going to help achieve that? That is something I'm actively thinking about as I think we all are, it's actually helped in some ways to have clarity from from this pandemic and coronavirus. So before coronavirus, like we weren't really thinking 
as much about chapters. Like we had really staked a whole lot of our growth as an organization on educators and adults. And now that adults are telling us that we can't, uh, we don't even know what's happening. <laughs> so we have to hold off on, on our engagement with Novelty. We've found that actually our love is, is working with, with high school students and middle school students directly. And that's been a lot of fun. So I think in terms of what's the goal for the five-year vision, I think is to really hone in on working with middle and high school students and also bringing in college students into the mix. It's been an exciting time because we've started to build out different opportunities and leadership pathways for, for all of these different types of students to get involved. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to our Speak Leadership Academy coach position for college students. If any college students are listening, uh, that is something that is ongoing. So we would love it if you're interested. In- we'll link that. <laughs> yes, please do. Um, yeah, for for folks that are interested in discussing social issues with high school students, that's basically what the coach does. But yeah, in terms of our our five year vision, I think definitely more of that. Like, I would love to see there be um, novelty book clubs, novelty chapters at high schools all over the country, very geographically diverse as well. I would love to see that novelty becomes synonymous with what is good youth development, what is good youth centeredness practice, what an ed tech nonprofit could be uh, and and could accomplish because of innovation and creativity. So I would love it if Novelty had become known for that in five years. I'm very excited. I think I think this youth-driven pathway is, is going to be our, our path moving forward. I mean, I would love it too if, <laughs> if that was the future of education. I think it would be a much better world. So you guys are doing great and you're accomplishing so much already. And I can't wait to see what the next year and five years and 10 years takes for your company. It's awesome. And it's interesting too. I don't know if you have experienced this, but I feel like Gen Z in particular is much more receptive to this type of conversation, this discussion, um, especially with social media being such a space for, I feel like it's become more of a norm to actually be talking about these things over social media. And I'm curious how you have been thinking about harnessing maybe social media platforms for these types of discussions? Or do you really kind of want to center this talk and this these connections over the app itself? Definitely. So full disclosure, we are obsessed with our own Instagram. <laughs> In terms of branding and marketing and, and even just reaching young people, Instagram ads and our Instagram account have been our absolute favorite way to connect with with Gen Z in particular. Our whole focus, right, is on dialogue. Like we believe that dialogue can be transformative, impactful, empathetic, um, all of these things that that I think the world really needs right now, especially in a time of growing polarization here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And dialogue can happen in many ways. It doesn't have to be through our app. It doesn't have to be through these novelty chapters that are meeting. It could also be on Instagram, Twitter, and that's actually where a lot of dialogue is happening right now. I think that's something definitely to explore a little bit more. Like right now, we have our favorite Instagram type of post is these what to say whens. And whenever there's like a hot button issue, we create what to say when graphics as a way to help people who are 
in our community and navigate really tough conversations. So what to say when someone says that all lives matter, for example, within the context of Black Lives Matter, you have this gut feeling that you want to respond to it. You just don't know how to navigate it. And that's kind of what our, our graphics do. But in terms of having more conversations directly, like in the comments or on Twitter, like I, I think that's still an area for us to explore. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I've seen kind of similar things floating around on Instagram, but nothing as tangible as that. So checking that out. Thank you. Switching gears a little, we wanted to ask what the most valuable like business skill I say like quote unquote that you think you have picked up and for someone who doesn't have a ton of entrepreneurial experience or maybe didn't consider starting a business while they were in college what do you recommend they learn as the first step when they're starting a business Mm -hmm. one of uh, my mentors told me in very early on that I only have two jobs as a CEO and it's to keep money coming in the door and to hire people who are smarter than me or better than me at a lot of things. And I didn't believe her, but it's turned out to actually be quite true. And I think the skill that I've been working on and have continuously improved throughout this journey is storytelling and pitching. And telling a good story is how you get money to flow in because you are convincing people to invest in your vision and believe in what you're trying to accomplish. And they will back that up with money that's coming into into your bank account. And then the second part about hiring people who are just fantastic human beings. And my team, like I honestly cannot do anything or we could not have accomplished all of the things that we have accomplished so far without these first few team members who have come in through through Novelty. And that also took a lot of storytelling and telling a story of like why this matters, why you should work here, what is the greater vision. So I think that's been probably the most one of the more surprising skills. Like I really thought I'd I'd value more accounting skills or things that seem a little bit more hard uh, versus soft. But mm-hmm. but storytelling has been probably the most valuable skill for me to accomplish because I know that it'll at least get accomplished like these two main functions of my job. Thank you so much. One thing you said about storytelling for funding, can you explain a little bit more for, first of all, do you receive funding, advocate for funding as a nonprofit or a for-profit company? And for our listeners that don't really know about the funding process, what does that look like? Yeah. So we are registered as a nonprofit. And um, traditionally or historically, we've gotten the majority of our funding from foundations and the U.S. government. Right now, we're moving towards a much more diversified funding portfolio, uh, which would be wise regardless of whether or not you're a nonprofit or a for-profit or, or just a person, <laughs> making sure that your assets are, are coming from diverse streams. Definitely. So that's what we're moving towards now, especially with with this pandemic. Like we we realize, like oh god, like we can't rely on on the government to or the or foundations to to fund us forever. Right now, what we're moving towards is a combination of large foundations, so Gates, and then small family foundations. I don't think we'll be applying for government funding anytime soon, uh, and individual donors, so small recurring donors. A super interesting thing that we're exploring right now is Patreon. 
So I don't know if you both uh, support anyone. I love Patreon. I love Patreon. And I realize, so I, um, you know, support Patreon as a concept uh, and I'm a huge fan Mm -hmm. of it. But it had never occurred to me that nonprofits could also use Patreon, but you can. So um, because we produce a lot of original stories and content, Patreon's another another opportunity for us to kind of basically get donations, but create a community around those donations and make sure that the people who are donating their money get to see what the result of that is. So that's another another exciting area for us. Those are our three different funding strategies. And I guess the last revenue stream would be around corporate giving. So through, I think in the past month or so, we've gotten a grant from Spanx and then from Trustme. So I'm very excited to continue having conversations with, with corporations who in particular support female founders and are really excited to, to support young female founders uh, in, their, in their entrepreneurial journey. Those are our now new revenue streams. I do have one quick question. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about like a fee-for-service model? If not, or if so, why have you guys strayed away from that? The chapters are kind of a fee-for-service model in that way. In order to be a chapter, you have to fundraise $100 per year. At least that's what we've come up with for now. I think we're going to stick with it. Of course, you can. The, each chapter can apply for a waiver if more than, or the majority of students at their school qualify for free or reduced lunch. But that's kind of how we're approaching more of the sustainability question is fee-for-service. And similarly for educators like whenever school goes back to normal whatever that means we are exploring a similar membership type of fee for having access to all of our curricula and resources that we have cool no thank you for going through all those because it definitely also gives ideas to maybe people listening about the many different ways which you can receive funding i'm glad you mentioned patreon i love the company it's really cool Well, with that as well, you mentioned that a lot of these, I guess, companies and foundations are willing or want to support female founders as they should. And so if you're comfortable, could you maybe share with us some stories about challenges you've faced as a female founder of color specifically? Yeah, definitely. I, (laughs) as a female founder, female founder of color or a, a young female founder, so someone who's in their 20s, you just get underestimated so much. Uh, And I've had quite a bit of condescension thrown my way. One of the, or one of the folks that I was meeting about, um, you know, creating a partnership with, with an organization that will remain unnamed uh, is, (laughs) and I just remember she, she said to me, like, I don't understand why the Gates Foundation would trust you with a grant. Oh my god. And it was <laughs> it was so humiliating. Like a because like what does that imply? That implies that I'm irresponsible, that I'm not worthy of of being funded, that mm-hmm. I will not deliver. And it was, it's just extremely hurtful. And I think I had, I mean, that was the worst one, but just little interactions like that, where people clearly think that you are not capable. Right. Is like, that's the message that comes through loud and clear is that you are not capable of doing what you are currently doing. And it's really hard because I, at the time, and even now, like I still struggle with this question of whether or not I am capable 
which is of course ridiculous because we're doing the work, you know, <laughs> yes, if you're, if you're definitely doing the work, like you're obviously capable mm-hmm. when you are already kind of struggling with a, with a confidence issue, uh, to have someone kind of confirm that for you and someone who you're trying to actively form a partnership with, it's really, it's really hard on on your confidence. So that's the main uh, challenge that I, I see with a lot of um, particularly young female founders is like, is this crisis of, of confidence and, and just feeling like people are constantly um, underestimating what you're capable of. Yeah, no, that definitely taps into what you were saying at the beginning about like the imposter syndrome. But because you're doing it right now, of course, you're going against all those barriers, like you're doing it. And so I guess like what I really take away from that is when you hear these comments or feel senses of insecurity, take a step back and see what you're actually doing and the actions you're taking and how those don't align or meet up with what people might be saying. Exactly. That's actually one of the best advice that I got when I was really, oh, just like really deep in the imposter syndrome is someone, Elise from OKSO, who is also a fabulous female entrepreneur, said to me, look at the facts. Like when you're feeling this way, just look at the facts. I remember when we were at a happy hour, I was telling her that I still hadn't changed my LinkedIn profile. So I had technically been a founder for six months. And I told her that the app isn't out yet. I don't feel like I should be calling myself a founder or a CEO or putting this out on LinkedIn because that's not true. And she said, look at the facts like you have incorporated an organization. You guys are doing research like the app doesn't have to exist for you to mm-hmm. be making it a possibility and making it a reality. Mm-hmm. So that that's exactly going towards what you said, like, what is the truth? And the truth is that we're doing it. Yeah. We're doing the damn thing. Yes, exactly. That's awesome. And I think that it's so nice to hear that you do have a community of other female founders and empowering women that can all like work together and get through this stuff. And you have people to go to when you do have that self-doubt or insecurity. I just feel like it's so important to have other females to lift you up and empower you. So that's awesome. All right. So we are about to finish up. We have our like last fire round questions. So um, Mm. I'm going to ask the question and then if you wouldn't mind responding and then Mimi and then I'll respond and then we'll go to the next one. There's three in total. Sounds great. Let's do it. Cool. All right. So the first question is, what is or was your favorite young adult fiction novel? I'll Give You the Sun by Jandy Nelson. Mimi, have you read that? I haven't read that. I haven't either. No, I thought I was like a young adult fan. <laughs> I, I love that book. But also, like, if I'm going to be totally honest, when I was actually 14, I was a huge fan of the Twilight series. <laughs> but it, it has not aged super well on me. So. But it but that's honestly like what was my favorite series as a, as a teenager. My favorite series was The Mortal Instruments. Like Cassandra Clare like wrote the books and she has like several kind of sections like the City of Bones, the Infernal Devices, the whole series. And I loved her. I sent her so many like fan emails and thought she was so cool. Never met her. Yes, that's my choice. 
I this was probably back in elementary school now that I think about it, but I just loved the Percy Jackson series. And then the following series that came after it. Oh my gosh. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And then I would like create imaginary worlds where I was also a demigod and like I had powers and I would just sit in my backyard with my siblings and neighbors and like (laughs) pretend. So that's like more like a child. Like it's technically a young adult child or novel, but I was a child when reading it. Okay, for the next question, what is your favorite cuisine? Mm, Definitely Thai. I don't think it's possible for me to get tired of Thai food. What about you guys? Yes, I mean, I do like Thai, but Chinese food is my favorite. Yeah, I just love it. There's, There's a bunch of really, really good Chinese restaurants like in Thailand where I grew up. And so it would always like be the choice and we'd always pick Chinese. Nice. I love Mediterranean food, but both of those are also great options. Food is just good. All food. Yep. It's what gives (laughs) me the most joy in quarantine. (laughs) All right. So for the final question, what is an activity that helps you unwind and makes you feel most relaxed? I can't believe I'm saying this, but running. I hated running for the majority of my life and I haven't been able to go to the gym. So running has surprisingly been fantastic. Awesome. For me, I love listening to ASMR and I have like certain triggers. I have favorite YouTube channels. If anyone is interested, I have the best videos. So (laughs) ASMR for me. That's awesome. I live in San Diego, so I am lucky enough to live relatively near the ocean. So going for a swim at the beach Mm -hmm. is such a rejuvenating feeling. I honestly feel like being in water in any way can really like wash everything, all whatever's going on your head out so i love to swim yeah that would be my activity all right so that is all we have and i thank you so much for coming this has been such a fun and informative conversation i love what you're doing i know mimi loves what you're doing it's truly exceptional and i'm also super excited to use that myself so definitely catch me um doing that so thank you so much for being a guest today Thank you. This was such a fun conversation. So thank you both for this.